Welcome to Out of the Woods, the Threat Hunting Podcast. Hey everyone, I want to welcome everyone to our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast live edition with the interactive discord the aim is to cover the burning topics relating to all the threat hunting and security stuff you want to know about just a reminder throughout the podcast we'll be taking comments and questions from our discord server so if you want to participate make sure to sign up using the link in the welcome message so if you guys haven't seen this before we'll do a quick introduction of ourselves i'm scott poley um you can check out my experience and background in, in my LinkedIn account. Um, work at Cyborg as a threat senior threat hunter and content developer. So I'll hand it off to you, Mike. Tell us a little about yourself. Yep, I'm Mike Mitchell. Um, one of the co-founders here at Cyborg, but really focused on the engineering post-sales type of work. And Scott, you didn't tell us who you were, who you were, right? I'm, I'm the god of thunder. There we go. <laughs> Um, and I guess I'm a baby shark, so I'll hand it off to Lee. <laughs> I'm Bob Ross. I spent 20 years in the Air Force, and then I started training people to paint. There we go. That's, I'm Lee Argonal. Um, I'm a senior threat hunter and content developer here. Um, you've possibly seen me spamming LinkedIn and Twitter, um, but I help develop the threat hunt packages, and I also am part of the customer success where we train our customers to become better hunters. Uh, it's a great job and really rewarding. Awesome. Back to you, Thor. So yeah, something to mention with every episode, we always have a future cocktail recipe. And this one, it's the malware margarita. So if you look in the show notes or it might get posted, you'll see the ingredients, but you know, give it a try, give us feedback. We like to come up with uh, theme-based drinks and uh, hopefully um, people are trying and enjoying them. But another note, we did change up the first portion of this podcast, the live edition. Um, because we actually do uh, a weekly podcast to cover the top five security topics. If you guys haven't seen that, you can check it out and where you find your typical podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so forth. Um, so please, if you like like what you hear here, subscribe, join, leave feedback and reviews. It'd be great. But we're actually going to start this off with what we like to call the three interesting artifacts. So it's going to be things that we ourselves have found that would be interesting from either tools, articles, whatever it is that we want to talk about uh, that we'll bring up um, for you guys to kind of listen and, and chime in as well. Uh, that's what we're going to kind of start off this podcast session with. So um, with that being said, Mike, why don't you take it away with your first interesting artifact? Absolutely. Um, and I believe these articles will be in the show notes after we're done, um, so you can look them up as well. But we're gonna start off with a ZDNet article, um, kind of a throwback, I haven't been on this website in a while, but it's talking about security teams reaching their breaking point. Um, and you know, the, the title is clickbait, it's, it's we should all be worried, which we should be, but it kind of goes into detail around the effects of stress and burnout across security teams, right? Um, some of the really interesting points that it talked about um, so Mimecast did a poll across, I believe, 1,200 organizations, um, and around 300 analysts within that poll said they wanted to change their careers due to stress and burnout. Um, a lot of that was centered around ransomware um, and ongoing media attention for every breach 
um, that happens or every ransomware attack or every incident, uh, it's always a headline in the news. So I think these analysts were feeling like the stress was all on them, um, as well as you know the issues that they feel like it's on their back. So they could potentially risk losing their jobs because of a breach. Um, so I'll pause right there. You know, there's some interesting details in the article, but uh, I think one of the highlights is that there's a demand for cyber skills and there's a skill gap. And so us as hunters have recognized that um, working for a managed service provider, uh, working with threat hunters, uh, Scott and Lee have both been threat hunters at a variety of different organizations. Um, and they could probably speak to a little bit closer the kind of the skill gap and some of the issues around that. So with you, both of y'all have worked in a SOC before, does this article resonate with y'all? So I will definitely yeah. say um, that the worst part about being in cybersecurity is knowing that you are nothing but overhead. Um, you're not producing anything. You're not um, producing products. You're not making you know profit. What you're doing is you're costing the company money. And after so many years of not or just costing and costing and costing, um, it's hard to justify that you are doing what you you're you're supposed to be doing even if you're not finding any attacks or there's no breaches or anything it it just comes to the point where it's just like well why even have you and unfortunately some organizations you know do reach that point or those organizations are at the point where they won't pay anything until there is a breach um you know you've heard the stories of millions of dollars being thrown or all those you know budgets being opened up when people were like hey we need six more people no we don't have in our budget then the breach happens and then all of a sudden hey we got we got budget for those slots what um, was the most recent one i think we called it out in our channel um there was a influx of opening position or not patreon peloton right uh it was either peloton was it was it uber one of yeah, those. uber yeah when yeah everything yeah. happened there was a bunch of postings yep i remember seeing that Yep, but yep. Oli, I have a question for you regarding this because you were my supervisor before and you've been wearing them or you've worn the managerial hat. Um, if you're at this situation um, or in this situation as a manager, what's like a quick win that you can, um, like a quick win for the, um, for closing the capabilities gap with people? And what about a quick win for the technology uh, or the technology side of the house, because we know that a quick win is doesn't mean easy button where you go out and buy a right. you know millions of dollars. But please enlighten us on that side, because you've been there. Yeah, so I do think burnout is definitely something that's uh, a management problem because it's like priority management ultimately, right? I, I feel like there are a lot of um, you know people sometimes have a hard time managing their own priorities, and that's where management really has to step in for one. Um, but two, it's kind of like investing in your people. Like I know, you know, a lot of times you have security staff or IT staff, you're short staffed. So that means you really don't have a lot of white space in your workday. Um, and, and I feel like it's important, especially from the security side of the things, because these are the guys that when an incident happens, that's when they're burning 24 to 72 hours straight, you know, working together, working within the team, trying to do handoffs, trying to do everything they can. And if you're working long hours or long days up to that point you know how do you expect someone not to feel that extra stress and burnout when they now have to deal with incidents on top of that um and so something that i have done and lee you may have left when i implemented this but i thought it was a really good solution for this 
um, is creating that white space. So we had rotations and we used to, I used to put people on a rotation for about a week where it was just professional development, right? It was their way to step away almost from the keyboard, focus on how do they get stronger in their areas. So there's benefit being added to the team. They're able to focus on things that, you know, they normally don't have time to focus on. And if they need to kind of catch their breath and work at a slower pace, that opportunity exists. And usually they bring more back to the team um, after that with, you know, presentations, new capabilities, tools, and those types of things. Um, and, and I think that's incredibly valuable to both the people to keep them wanting to work hard all the time when they are engaged, but also you need to really, you know, develop, make your people feel wanted and appreciated too. That kind of helps manage some of that stress as well. So, yeah, I would imagine that there's in a day to day in a sock, you're not getting a lot of kudos for things you do, right? Um, it's kind of, it kind of goes unsaid. Um, and so I could see where, you know, not getting the, you know, congrats, great job on that thing or great job handling that alert. There's so much more those guys are doing that aren't necessarily called out, at least from a managerial perspective, right? That, you know, it's tough, right? It's a, it's a thankless job until something happens. Um, something else in the article is really interesting is so, I think it was in the polled group that said 50 cent, 56% of attacks cost an average of $100,000. And I guess that's from an IR perspective or recovery perspective. This might be specific to ransomware in today's space. And they also mentioned that the average budget is about 550K. So if you think about it, that's 20% of the yearly budget if you're attacked. And so that cuts into what these organizations can do from a tooling perspective, a training perspective, um, you know, with the recent ransomware attempts, I don't, I mean, they didn't go into, again, I've brought up before, but like cyber insurance typically will help cover mm -hmm. some of that, but the budgets only really increase if there's a problem, right? If, if everything's good, the budgets stay the same, which the landscape changes so much. You need to be on top of the changing threats, the tooling, the capabilities, the training. So, it's a it's a, it's a weird structure from the, the managerial side of the house to be able to to offer up these kind of resources for the yeah. analysts. I feel like, you know, this is kind of like the paradigm I, I see now more with threat hunting, right? Where when you look at a lot of security operations, um, it seems like the methodology in defense is really playing, always playing catch up. Like people always feel like, oh, we've, we've got to catch, you know, the red team just has to win once. And with that mentality, you're kind of playing, all right, we're trying to always catch up to the red team or the adversaries or whatever they are. And I mean, you think about that, that's like playing from a position of being exhausted all the time mentally. Like you either at the mark or just behind the mark, you know, you never really feel like you're ahead of the game. And I feel like that's the one thing that kind of threat hunting adds to that is since you're proactively looking for things and staying kind of in a way in that ahead of the mark position, it kind of enables you to kind of let down your hair, so to speak, right? Where you can kind of be like, all right, we're looking for these types of things. We expect these things to get through at certain points. We know how to find them when they do. Um, so that that level of stress, maybe, you know, you kind of share it with different people or different operations. You kind of have a different approach and you're not kind of feeling like you're behind the ball all the time. So um, I, that's kind of something I like as far as just putting things in a different perspective or having a different uh, strategy, so to speak, as, as far as how you deal with these uh, you know, up and coming things or, or regular things, you know, yeah. the other thing. 
and I, just looking at Discord, J-Dub uh, put in much easier to hire an MSP from a budgetary perspective. And that's absolutely right. I think a lot of organizations went that route because it's easier to hire an MSP than hire and find and train and retain analysts and engineers and the tools and the capabilities. So they're kind of outsourcing that work. The thing that we're now seeing is that these MSPs are stressed because these MSPs have hundreds yeah. of customers, right? And they have a hundred analysts. So these analysts are having to manage way more than an internal team would have to, right? Um, and so now those emails are getting burnout. Um, and so there, there's a, a weird cycle here. Um, and again, to the point, there's a, I think the last, it was like 4 million open recs in cybersecurity across the board. So it really kind of drills back into how do we train and retain talent across the board? Agreed. Yeah. Now, um, I, think, I think it's always ironic too that we always look at it and we're like, you need this many years of experience. You need this many certifications, you need this. <clears throat> and you're getting hacked by a 17, 18 year old kid that took a, advantage of MFA and just abused it until the person was finally like, fine, yes, I accept it. And he got it. Like, I mean, it, one of our- unreal, the, the bars that we set, um, to hire people and then we say there's a gap like start looking at it at, from an adversary perspective if you have someone that's passionate they're going to break into your house no matter what they're really passionate about what you have they're going to get there they're not going to sit there and say well i don't own the house i don't have a house key so if we start hiring passionate people maybe that gap will start to close and maybe we'll start being uh, a little bit more successful yeah i mean Somebody that we all know here on this call um, came from a, 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 an industry kind of adjacent to the food industry, but um, became one of the better analysts at a job I used to work at, right? Um, he, he had the passion, the energy, and the drive to learn the, the kind of cybersecurity environment and what it took to be successful. So I think there's, there's kind of core skills that people that we've all worked with have. And I think if you hire to those core skills and you have the opportunity to train up, you're gonna get a lot more talent and retain a lot of talent. Um, but I, to your point, Lee, I think we do put really interesting barriers on in, to entry for some of these positions. Um, yeah. I think, we, I think we've got burnout on this topic now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take the I'll take the next topic. So this is something that um, I came across uh, earlier this week, actually, um, and I just I just loved like it's a, a topic that gets talked about a lot. Um, but basically, it was a GitHub um, repo by Black Hills Infosec. Um, I like those guys. I love John Strand. Um, but it's about their event logging. So you know if you if you go to their event logging and their GitHub repo. Um, for that, uh, it, they have a really, really great um, layout tool set, um, pre-configured PowerShell scripts to basically set up Windows event forwarding. But in, in such a way that they kind of organized it that I thought was really interesting, right? So it's like they already have the PowerShell scripts to configure your WEF, configure your collectors. Um, they have all the uh, GPOs that you would, you would pull in. They have all the XML configurations already already there. So, I mean, you can pretty much, you know, 
uh, you obviously want to customize things a little bit for your environment, but it lets you basically roll this out in like five minutes, right? Like very, very simple, other than some reboots you might have to do on some, some machines after configuration changes take place, like that basic setup. But my favorite thing that I thought was really, really, really slick was, you know, they had the breakout of DEF CON levels, what they called it. And it was kind of more like, at what logging level do you want things to be at? Like DEF CON being like the most forensic image type logging versus DEF CON 4 being your most generic logging. Um, and, you know, it was kind of cool too, because you kind of rolled it up. Like you started with four, which was like, let's get the entry level. And then you want to add more capabilities. You can, then you ran the scripts on three and two and so forth. Um, it really enabled you to kind of like step things up at different places. Um, but they also had a way to break out the subscriptions. And if you guys aren't, aren't looking at it under, uh, the DEF CON four, um, they have the subscriptions broken out in a table and they basically break out the subscriptions on almost like category or topic. So like, for instance, they'll have like ADF, ADFS in one, or they'll have app locker in its own or exploit guard or PowerShell. And I thought that was a really ingenious way because depending on what kind of logging you want on one systems, you can set up those subscriptions based on system. Like some, you might not care about those logs. Some, you might care more about certain logs, but I've also seen an issue doing WEF um, was, you know, maybe you want to add events to your subscription. Well, some of those WEF subscriptions actually break when you add too many event IDs. Um, this was kind of a, a really cool way to manage that where you didn't have to worry about anything kind of breaking in, in the way it was deployed and organized, uh, which I thought was really awesome. Um, something else I really want to call out too was the uh, Sysmon configuration. So in the DEF CON 3, they have their own Sysmon configuration. And it was a really nice layout of things that they've already kind of excluded. Um, but they also kind of had a good representation for how you can do rule grouping with Sysmon. So maybe you want to capture certain events, but only with specific criteria. It showed a way where you can enable and do that for the different event types and be more granular and it lets you cut out some of the noise that uh, you may know you don't want to collect. And then the last point I want to make before I jump in to let you guys chime in on what you guys think and see um, that I did not know uh, was, you know, obviously event forwarding happens over WinRM. And, you know, they're using the unencrypted for the, without the SSL search setup because the logs are already pre-encrypted with Kerberos. So there's no need to do the double encryption. I didn't know that. Um, so I, I was trying to think of like, what case would you want to do the double encryption? Maybe if you're sending those logs to a collector outside of a certain environment, I don't know. Um, but I'm pretty sure Kerberos can do AES-128 encryption, which is kind of the same encryption you get from SSL stuff in general. Um, so it was kind of nice to know that, hey, you can kind of save some headroom there and, and some, you don't have to manage the PKI. And they kind of have a really good YouTube video to check out that kind of shows how they walk through setting it up. But thought it was a fantastic resource and very informative. So I don't know what you guys saw when you guys checked it out. So I'm going to put on my red tape hat real quick because some things that you said bothered me. I, I'm a CISO and I just spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on EDR, NDR, MDR, DDR, you name it. We've already configured the environment. We've made changes. We went through that whole process. It took about a year. Um, and then why should I let you configure my environment further when this could break my tools? This could break exactly what we tried to do and all that money we spent on. Why should we, even if it is free, why should we pay or spend the time and effort 
um, and resources on this on this uh, task. I mean, my answer to that, if I had to, if I got that kind of opposition, would be always start small, and you know, either start with your test set first, where you think you might get value, and then transition to like, hey, if if it's something we don't want to manage manage on a large scale, look at some really critical assets. Because what you need to explain is with this type of visibility, what do you gain? Um, especially with the Sysmon side. I mean, that's that's another selling point. And it was cool because in their Sysmon side, it was a way to manage Sysmon within a kind of like an Active Directory global group policy way, not like individual configs dropped on machines. So they kind of had a method for if you update the config on this central location, it updated everywhere else when things checked in. Fantastic. Um, so it made it easy. Um, but yeah, I mean, visibility is one of those things, there's always a cost with it. And ultimately it comes down to what what threats are you trying to mitigate? What threats are you trying to identify? Um, and what visibility do you need to do that successfully? Um, so, you know, it's it's always gonna be a conversation sometimes, but that would be where I'd start. Start small and start critical if you had to pick. Yeah, I would say, uh, I think Scott, to your point, the way they broke it down based on event IDs and smaller bite-sized chunks, because the one thing that you're gonna run into from a logging perspective is the events per second. If you're shipping this to any type of cloud sim, you're gonna run into ingestion and cost to be able to get this data out. And so that's the biggest barrier to doing and having extreme visibility outside of the tool sets that kind of already uh, black box it, calling the EDR tools, the XDR tools. Um, there's an increased cost, right? Because you're you're doing this kind of outside of the parameters of what those EDR tools are typically gonna do. Um, but I, I love I love the the form factor and how they broke everything down because I mean we have some some organizations that we talk to ask like what's the standard of logging uh, especially when you get into windows event logging and sysmon you know there's there's not a default go-to use always use this thing right i think it matters per the organization per the visibility that you need um, and this is a really good way to chunk that down um, and i love the the defcon i think one is um i believe it's an active incident uh forensics imaging so that's going to be super verbose but that's not something you should just turn on and leave on day zero right that's going to blow up your environment um you're probably going to end up getting like two weeks of visibility with the logs rolling out so um they took a lot of care and effort into designing and building it this way so you know i i, I super appreciate the effort i'm curious to see how many organizations are actually utilizing this right i, I saw there's 266 stars on the repo so I'm, I'm hoping people are using it and watching it but this is a great place to start to at least understand what you need to put in place from a uh, visibility perspective all visibility get or uh visibility assessments are now going to be rated on as defcons exactly that, that would be nice though that would be a, a nice standardized method versus so tailoring it to each environment so it's, it's some it's conversations i've had with you know past orgs and, and people I've worked with. Um, this kind of makes me think of this when you talk about like, sh when or should we deploy this type of logging? Well, what's nice is it's something that you, they set it up to where it's almost like a switch. I mean, there's, like I said, there's some reboots, some things you have to do, but it's kind of like a switch the way they set it up, but kind of makes me think of application whitelisting. And, you know, it's something where, you know, AppLocker, right? Built into Windows, you can configure it. Um, 
and you can configure it in just monitor mode. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, in the time we were doing things, if we just had some routine to basically start saying and allowing and accepting certain things and had a process just to kind of build that list out of what we would allow, but nothing enabled. Imagine when stuff hits the fan, right? That point where, oh my gosh, we're getting overrun with whatever. We think we have ransomware popping up, whatever it is. And you have enough of a whitelist and think that most of your business operations could function. And you had to throw that on. That would be a great like DEFCON instant response move to make where, hey, a majority of our things will still work. A couple things might break. We understand that risk, but we completely neutered the entire threat. Because most cases, if you don't have application whitelisting running, they're not going to be trying to skirt application whitelisting. You throw that in the mix, all of a sudden, a lot of stuff is going to break. And then you'll see all the things that are failing through the logs that way too. Just kind of like one of those things where you have these tools in your bag, you know, how would you stage the tool even if you don't actively use it? You know, there, there's some capabilities some people like don't keep in their pocket, essentially. They only have live tools all the time. So, I love that approach to um, having the ability to kind of, you know, throw up the defenses immediately or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, pull up the drawbridge or, you know, drop armor, whatever you want to say, right? Um, I feel like incident response is typically threat to threat to threat, right? And it takes some time to understand what the threat is before you understand what you need to do to mitigate. So to your point, if you already have an understanding of that whitelisting or bare bones business operations, right? You're still gonna be able to make money. You're still gonna be able to operate, but we're gonna shut everything else down until we figure out what the threat actually is. And not, I'm not talking about cutting network connections and turning off computers, right? right. I'm talking about shutting down potentially the VPN or locking down access to critical infrastructure from outside resources that don't really need it for business operations. Well, um, it's, it's funny you mentioned the cutting the internet. I feel like, you know, the 20 year ago cyber guy, the most senior guy, that was his move. It was yeah. like, hey, we're, we're pwned. Well, what do we do? He like walks over, <laughs> grabs the ethernet, pulls it. And we're like, all right, well, we're good right now. Let's figure it out. Like you can't do that in today's operations. Everyone relies with, with the cloud resourcing and, and SaaS and everything else. You have to have another way to kind of lock things down. And I think application whitelisting to be able to enable it on the fly like that is a good, it's the equivalent of modern day unplugging the yeah. internet. Yeah, my automation. We got a question from Guns Blazing. Um, how do you guys feel about gray noise for noise reduction? Personally, I have no experience with it. Um, I'm hoping you two do. Now we might have to do some digging. Great noise is the the tool that kind of looks for the um, it's all the network based stuff, I believe. Aren't the the company that looks at uh, I've looked at it before. I know we have people that on the team that are, are big fans of it. I think the data is really cool. I can't speak like an expert on it, um, but I do think it's good to understand what that gray noise is because um, it's kind of what you expect to run and just you want to be able to ignore, right? So uh, it kind of goes in the network side of things, but I do think it's kind of a cool resource. It's really good when you're really digging into things that you're unsure about, like I'm seeing a lot of activity and I'm not sure if this is bad or good, but it doesn't make sense to me. Then you can kind of compare it to things that you see in gray noise. They might already have something on it. Um, so yeah, I mean, so. well, yeah, it looks like it does kind of, and I'm just reading the website right now, but it, it basically cuts, uh, you know, it, it flags things like internet scanning, common, common business services, uh, you know, 
things that are normal. So it's almost like that anomaly detection like from that norm. perspective, yeah. but in a wider scale. So from a threat hunting perspective, again, if, if there's a threat, that's where it's really important to understand your environment and the scope and what you're working with. So I know talking with Lee as he's doing these trainings, you know, it's it's really important as you're starting to look through the log to say, oh, we can exclude that because this is X, Y, Z, or I've seen that traffic before because this is that, right? I think this does a really good job of helping out with that from a, uh, you know, potential external, internal, kind of a, a wider net. But I think it's important to kind of understand to uh, with guns blazing um, noise reduction. But I think you can innately learn that just by looking at the data that you have in your environment and understanding. Yeah, the scope. it's always important to to expose yourself to data. So so often I've worked with admins when there's an issue, and I'm like, hey, I'm seeing some weird stuff, and they get in they're like, well, that doesn't look good, and I start they start going to panic mode. And you're like, oh, I've never seen that before. And now I look at my history of logs that I collect. And I'm like, well, that's been going on for six or seven months. Can't be that important. And they're like, well, I don't know. And it's just because they, they're not used to looking at their logs. So everything that looks like an error or alert stands out. And it's and it's kind of like that same thing. If we're not looking at our own data from time to time, some things are going to naturally look worse than they are versus, you know, you kind of have a, you know, uh, kind mm -hmm. of a, a pulse, so to speak, on the data you're, you're collecting and looking at. Yep. And J-Dub asks, a question, from an IR perspective, he says, you know, they go into an environment, they never know what they're dealing with, right? They don't have an understanding of logs. And I'd be curious to to know if, like, the people that they're going into to help have an understanding of their own environment and the logs. Like, how much <laughs> like help how are they? How well do they know themselves? Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and that's always the problem, right? I think I'm here to ask the tough questions, and why not, J-Dubs? <laughs> <laughs> No, that, that's got to be tough. Yeah, and like yeah. Mike said, how many SOC analysts know their environment? Especially yeah. when they're at burnout stage 11 constantly. I know, you know, working in a place for five years or more, there's never something I don't come across that surprises me or that I find it new, right? It's just environments are so big now, and they there's things that are changing all the time way more frequently than they ever used to. So, you know, sure. it's tough. Sure. Yeah, especially with, right. you know, the, the the developer landscape for most products now where a developer can stand up a whole dev environment with a click of a button, with networking, with open ports, with access to databases, it's scary out there, right? Um, it's very hard to keep that, you know, on top of mind for an analyst that doesn't have, you know, they're not notified that, hey, we're turning up this whole new environment to do the testing. They're typically not right. notified on that kind of thing, so. Um, that's a whole other topic right. around DevSec. Yeah. yeah. You want to jump to uh, Lee's interesting artifact that he kind of pulled up. I don't know Lee, if you're ready to introduce that. Yeah, no, after that nonsense. So, um, <laughs> good thing that's not recorded. Uh, so, I was lucky enough to uh, participate or listen to a uh, Black Hat talk this year. Um, at Black Hat 2022, and it was given by some guys at IBM, uh, John Dwyer, Neil Weiler, and Samir Karain. I hope I pronounced it right. Um, but what what they did is they introduced the what they called the Open Threat Hunting Framework. Um, I was really excited for this talk. I was going to be technical, and I came out with a different uh, point of view um, because 
I was going for technical talks, you know, trying to learn my craft better from experts. And what I got was actually um, very interesting, the complete flip side of things. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to, you know, at Cyber, we're trying to set the standard for threat hunting. We're trying to be the resource that people come to and say, you know, we're, we're trying to train our customers, make hunting or threat hunting better. Um, and what these guys are trying to do is they're trying to do the same thing, but from a managerial point of view. So as we document our queries that we use, as we document, you know, our hunt packages and how we got there, how do we create a hypothesis? The technical side of things, these guys went through and said, all right, if I want to stand up, if I'm a CISO, if I'm a director of threat hunting um, and I want to start a hunting program, what do I do first? And these guys took it and ran with it. I think they said it took two and a half years to create but it has 11 modules and it's it's not really a long read. Um, I actually, if, I would really recommend that you go read it because it was really good to see like, like I know what I'm doing from a technical standpoint. Sometimes I get in a tough spot and sometimes I don't understand what's going on, but it's all technical, all technical. But hearing these guys say, these are the individuals you need to look for. These are actually the skills that you want. And some of those skills were um, like, it, not just creative. It wasn't networking, security plus. It was like, talk to the people that ask the most questions. Talk to the people that are always willing to correct you in a PowerPoint slide. Be like, hey, that's misspelled. Because those are the people with the attention to detail, right? Because, um, you know, everyone says, I want to start a threat hunting program, but I don't have the people. Well, you have people at work. Just start looking around, start talking to people, start learning who's already there and who you can leverage for that in the end. Um, but then it talks about different roles, different tech uh, technologies like SIM, EDR. It's a, it's a really great read and I was really, really, um, it was refreshing to see it because I think the open threat hunting uh, framework really pairs nicely with our mission statement. Um, and it was just really refreshing to finally sit, have someone sit down and say, this is not the definitive source, but it's a start. And this is where we can start to build as a community. And, you know, at Cyborg, we like our community. We like talking to people. I love talking to people, meeting new hunters. Um, and the fact that they're doing that from the other side is great. Um, so I'll let you guys have it. You want, me, you want me to go first? Sure. All right. Yeah, so I, I love I love things like this. And especially it, it is cool, like, like Lee, you were saying from that, program perspective not the threat hunter perspective right um great right up there and then one of the things i and so i'm going to call out a couple of points when i was going through it that i think are, are good um interesting points and then i have some critiques as well that I'll, I'll touch on but some of my favorite points are like how do you gather support when you want to start the threat hunting um program and that is kind of talking about your dwell time of, of adversaries because that's what threat hunting is kind of about. Like someone's already in your environment. How do you know they're there? So there has to be that presence. And if their dwell time is long enough, that means you have that much time to hunt, right? So I thought that was a great uh, talking point. Um, and then, you know, um, a lot of organizations do pen tests regularly. Obviously pen tests will get past certain security controls. That's just another great justification um, to say this is why threat hunting is important because it's it's kind of looking at the data past the control. So that way, you know, that justifies why you would do it. And then the visibility, like discussing where you 
may or may not have visibility and how threat hunting can kind of validate that. I thought there was a really good talking points to gain that support from leadership to kind of build it out. Um, but the other thing I, I liked is they talked about defining kind of what threat hunting means to your organization. And I thought that was a great call out because when you think about the skills of threat hunters, they cover such a wide array of skills. There could be so much scope creep that can go from a threat hunting team to incident response to security. I mean, there's so many ways where a threat hunter can be utilized in an organization within a security operation. Um, they really need to understand what does threat hunting mean to them and what is their roles and responsibilities because they there still needs to be focused work to be able to get the value add that you get from threat hunting, in my opinion. Um, and then that skill matrix you called out, Lee, uh, my favorite part about that was it was just a great breakout of areas and it's a great way to look at, okay, if I need to staff a threat hunting team, I know what technologies and things I have or what visibility I have you can kind of use that matrix to then say, well, out of this, out of what I have visibility and technologies, I can pick what skills I need, right? So it doesn't have to fill all the boxes. You just fill the necessary box. Um, there was a place where you can, they, they called out for how you do the maturity for a threat hunting team, which is kind of cool. But the, the, the big thing I want to critique on, and this is just a personal pet peeve of mine, just dealing with management and metrics in general. How about you, Mike? <laughs> no, we'll go to the critique first. I want to hear this. <laughs> so they, they had a section on programmatic metrics, and I love data and I love metrics, but I think there's a huge disconnect on what is a key performance indicator and what's a metric. And I feel like when people need to come up with metrics quick, they just shoo in key performance indicators right so an example like i mean they put this together and i know they put thought into this and i'm not trying like great work i'm not trying to take away i'm just trying to add to right um so they say you know good things to count um they had like the number of hunts conducted as like a metric that's a key performance indicator to me right because i'm basically just counting one thing when i think of a metric I think of taking something that I'm counting and tying it to something else of value. If I can do those two things, almost like instead of finding the one variable in the equation, I'm solving for the whole equation that becomes a metric. Um, so if I were to say number of hunts conducted, that would be the KPI, that'd be your key performance indicator. I wanna turn that into a metric. Why don't we do the percentage of hunts that were conducted that had positive value? And the positive value could be lead to new detections, visibility gaps, finding malice. That would be a metric, uh, how you kind of spin that on its head, right? You're taking that key KPI, which KPIs are the first thing you're gonna grab when you wanna do anything like maturity type stuff. You wanna be able to measure those numbers and see what numbers we can collect. And then you wanna say, well, what do these numbers mean or what do we think they mean to us or how do we wanna get meaning? That's when you tie that other piece in and turn it into a metric because metrics should really de drive decisions how many hunts we conduct, to me, it's like, that's not gonna tell me, like, I don't have the number in my head, well, that's 10 less hunts than we should have done, or we should have done 15 more hunts this month. Like, that, that, like the manager's not gonna know that or know what that means. But when you say, hey, out of the hunts we did this month, 75% added value. Well, now you can ask those questions, why did these other ones not add value or what value did they add? Or what was the greatest value had from the 75%? Like, those are conversations you can have to then better the capability or the operation or under, you know, it, it kind of gets that whole one, you get better buy-in because people can actually start to see value 
more value um, in what you're presenting or you know pushing up to them, but also it really helps you understand what it is you're doing better. So that was my dig. I can kind of go through some other the KPI versus metric things, but um, I'm not going to soapbox forever on this. I'll, I'll toss it over to Mike and get your kind of two cents on this. I hope John's watching. <laughs> uh, no, I love your point around the KPIs versus metrics. I think when you get into, uh, if you just focus on KPIs, you can start to the goal shifts, right? Where I've seen some security operation centers where it's about how many alerts can you handle in a day? Like how many closed right. alerts can you get into? And then you're not really doing the work, right? You're just closing tickets, closing alerts, moving on. So even though metrics typically really relate to the manager side of the house, I think it's important for the analysts to understand why those things are important and what you're doing right. is important. It's not just a number, there's a goal, there's a vision, right? And it kind of bubbles up to the overall objective. Um, I, I do like how they called out the goals and objectives of, for a hunt. Because to your point, Scott, just because you do a hunt and you, you don't find anything doesn't mean it's not successful. There's a lot of other outcomes that can come from not finding something in your environment. And this is something Lee talks about a lot on the training side is, um, you can run a hunt. If you don't find anything, there should be some other questions that pop up. Were we affected by this threat? Uh, were we targeted by this threat? Do we have the visibility to see the things that we're supposed to see? Are the tools configured the right way? Is the network configured the right way? Those have actionable items that can get passed off to the engineering team or the SOC team to go fix the problem, right? You might run a hunt and find maliciousness in the environment that typically will go to the SOC team or the IR team to handle. But there are there are stages to what a hunt is and what it can be for an environment. So if a hunter is going in and hunting on things and, and not finding data, that's a successful hunt, right? Um, as long as they can confirm that the visibility is there and they know what they're looking for, you can now somewhat of a high percentage say, if that actually does infect my environment, I have the tools and capabilities to go hunt for the thing now. Right, and I will find it if it is available. Right, um, I love a good framework. I'm huge on standardizing things. I hope this is successful. I've seen a lot of other organizations over the past couple of years try to standardize a thing, and it just kind of like fades into existence. Right, um, and I hope the community gets behind this because it does help frame what hunting is. I think there is a uh, and it's probably the industry's fault. Right, but threat hunting has shifted over the past couple of years. So uh, when we used to do it at the previous company I worked at, Foreground Security, from an MSP perspective, we were doing the manual behavior-based hunts. Automation started to trick, tick, like, trickle in where it's now IOCs, it's now IPs, URLs, domains, and hashes that they're automating and hunting for. Um, I would call that detection engineering. Uh, but we would go to RSA and Black Hat a couple of years ago and everybody, every vendor said something about threat or automation, right? Um, and it was really interesting the year before COVID hit, their messaging was human-driven security. Everything was about the human. And it kind of pulled back a little bit from the AI machine learning conversation and put it back into the human's hands. Um, and so I think they're doing a really good job of explaining what threat hunting actually is. It's a process, it's a human-driven thing that 
people need to be aware of and be able to do and and operationalize in their environment. So um, I I would hope that we can kind of help and contribute back to this potentially, because um, this is only going to make the industry better and understand the scope of what this is. So one of the points that... you made. Good boy. Yeah, no, one of the points you made um, when you talked about the automation and it made me think of one of the KPIs and metrics things I kind of call out um, that I didn't talk about, but now you brought it up and made me think about it even more um, was something that we always talk about that's always a good thing to consider when you're hunting is when you have successful hunts, now how many times do you have that reoccurring hunt, right? And a good thing I think that we'll, to measure is one of the, you know, MITRE, another good framework, right? kind of let you know if you're going to be hunting what behaviors that might be associated with it'd be really cool to be able to communicate we have these recurring hunts and to put it into a metric say we have this many recurring hunts and this is how many we have on these verticals so you know right. you're hunting across the scheme of things you don't have too many recurring hunts in just one vertical i mean some verticals are easier to hunt in than others so i'm not trying to say it needs to be well balanced but that gives you the feedback of where you need to develop or what you need to focus on. And that's what's cool about metrics is it gives you that kind of step back view to be able to make those things. So if you do try to automate some hunting and getting results back kind of thing, you're able to at least contribute to how are we hunting or how are we trying to you know reproduce or re, you know, do the reoccurring type of assessments. So in real quick, before, I think that's important to understand that if you tie it to those TTPs in the MITRE framework, I think it's really important to understand what your threat landscape is. Because why am I hunting for something in whatever tactic, you know, <laughs> that doesn't affect my environment, right? Like right. Uh, that doesn't matter for the, I call it reconnaissance, right? You know, there's a bunch of TTPs around reconnaissance, but if you're a web app, you're getting scanned all day. I mean, you can hunt against it, but is that where you should be spending your time and effort? Right now, if you're getting internal scans, it's different. External scans, again, very different. But at least understanding your your landscape really helps drive the value to those hunts and those metrics and that reporting. Um, and Lee, I know you had a rebuttal. Yeah, no, I agree. So you talked about effective hunts. You talked about knowing your environment. Um, and those are those are all key things. And I know it all like just ties back. Um. But why would you threat hunt for something like AnyDesk if the, you know, or something that doesn't exist in your environment or you know you don't use or a threat that's not um, even worth it to you? But that always goes back to the metrics of defining what is an effective hunt. And I like how you mentioned that fully because you could say we threat hunted for a bunch of stuff, we came up with nothing and keep going on with all this. Um, but really, what are you doing? You know, is that effective or are you just, you know, checking boxes? Um, but yeah, so I think that this will, this stuff, this type of stuff will get um, kind of more popular, hopefully. Um, hopefully what doesn't happen is that someone takes it and patents it or labels it and slaps their name on it and says, this is the, um, now I'm going to use Lockheed Martin Kill Chain for, as an example. I mean, I know they created that, um, but it's something that's become a standard, right? Everyone knows the Lockheed Martin Kill Chain. Um, hopefully this stays open source. Hopefully this is ev open to everyone. And once people start getting on to it, um, yeah. So, yeah, so once I hope it's more successful. Yeah, I hope this kind of goes the way of um, zero trust from an example, right? Zero trust is a, it's a, it's a, a way to do security, 
right? It's a way to operationalize security from like a mindset. perspective. It's a mindset. So threat hunting is a mindset, right? You're seeing a lot of organizations build products around zero trust. They've, they've productized the concept. It'd be really cool to see people start to productize this and just drill it into people's heads that this is the way you actually threat hunt. Um, so yeah. Cool. Cool. That, that cover our interesting artifacts. We're gonna jump to some conversation topics. Oh yeah, I think it's on me, right? I, Mike, I, yeah, I'm yeah. Up. I think we're gonna put it on you for the first one. All right, so we're talking red versus blue, um, not the Halo series from back in the day, but red versus blue teaming, right? Um, this concept has been around for a very long time. Um, I think. It's it's interesting because in, in for the people who don't know, I mean, most of the people here are technical, but typically when you talk about red versus blue, the red is the the attacker or the aggressor, and the blue is the defender, right? Um, and so it used to be that organizations would typically hire out the red team, right? Those would be the penetration testers in an environment or in an organization or outside orgs typically services that they would come in and stress test an environment, right? They would come in and try to get access from an external IP into the environment. They might sometimes start within an environment and be able to pivot. Um, but for the most part in those types of situations, the members that weren't a part of the organization had very limited access to do the thing that they were trying to do, right? They had a single IP, or they had very, very, very tight guardrails on the things they could get to, the things they could hack, the things that they could try to break. Um, the blue team, on the other hand, was typically internal. They were normally the, the analysts, the SOC team, looking for that malicious traffic and threats. Um, from a hunting perspective, it could just be from a detection engineering perspective, um, anomaly, you know, uh, looking at the logs that are coming in. I think there's a shift now to where organizations want to bring this in-house. They want the red and the blue team to be uh, active members of the security operations center, their IR teams, their, their analysts. They want to bring a lot of that in-house to do it themselves. That really does open up the capability for them to um, be a little more aggressive, especially with the intrinsic knowledge from the red team, knowing what they shouldn't and shouldn't hit. There's still some guardrails, but, um, you know, typically they have the, the information necessary to make it a challenge, right, for that blue team. Um, it's it's interesting to see that transition happen from outsource to insource, um, but typically in these type of environments, the red team, I would say, I don't know what percentage it is, but a high percentage, they typically win the exercise. Um, and I kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll pull back a little bit and let Scott and Lee answer this, but is that what you've seen? Have you been a part of these type of exercises? And then we can drill into why is it important? Um, you know, what's the best way to actually uh, uh, execute these type of tasks? And I think we have a poll that we're going to throw up in the, uh, in Discord to kind of talk about that a little bit, yeah. but I'll throw it to y'all. So, um, yeah, the, um, the big thing for me with red teaming um, that I really like one, I've learned a lot, but yes, I, I have beat a red team with my team. Like I say, I have my team beat a red team 
Um, so I was very proud of them for that because it was a good can team. You, um, can you talk about what it means to then beat that team? So typically, um, if a penetration team is able to get to say one domain admin, right? That's kind of like the game over move. Like they got there, then you just assume they can then move so fast to do whatever they need to do. Or two, um, you don't see them at all, right? Everything they did was undetected. I would say those are losing conditions. Um, when we were able to beat the red team, one, to our advantage, the one of the red teamers, I guess the guy didn't follow the typical SOP they had set up. So when I talk about red, like the adversary is human, <laughs> they're going to make mistakes. And we totally capitalized on a mistake they made that just gave us enough insight that something was going on to where we were more proactive and going to find whatever was, you know, everything that was related to that single type of event. And that just opened up a can of worms, right? Um, really, really cool find. Um, but what I think what's cool about red teams is it's, it's about the validation piece. And that's something that I like that we do with um, our hunt packages at Cyborg, right? Is it's so important because sometimes when you have security operations building defenses, um, you know, you're building them off of other people's research. And sometimes you don't have the best way to test that whatever you built will actually work against the real attack. Like you have all the artifacts, you have a good hypothesis, essentially, whatever. And so red teams are a great way to validate, especially the more complicated type things you're building. Um, and, you know, with us, with the hunt packages, most of them that don't involve like standing up infrastructure, we build those emulations as well. So if people aren't familiar with with uh, Hunter and the, and the hunt package we build, there is a, a section in every hunt package when you drill into the content that says emulation and you can basically download an atomic a way to basically simulate the behavior that we're trying to basically detect. And I think that's really important. One, it proves out visibility like can you see what you're hunting for or what you're trying to detect uh, which red teams they provide the same type of service um, and can you validate that your logic and your tools are going to work how you expect them to work um, great step if you want to do automation it's the worst thing to do to set up automation for something you can't validate and then you just assume everything's just going to work and that first piece is always going to fail right like a lot of spent work for no value um, but i've also learned some of the coolest things from red teaming that I would have never have thought about it as a defender because I never had to. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to basically disclose the best way to beat some two factor in RSA because it has happened. Right. Um, yeah. It's so easy to defend against, but it is a true method to bypass it if you're not paying attention. Um, so RSA, when you use them as two factor, you know, there's certain services and things that you can't put two-factor on, like service accounts need to log into systems that have the RSA agent, everything like that. So there's a group that you can put users in that basically tell RSA agent not to two-factor that account, right? Well, two-factor is, it's not possible to put two-factor on WMI. So if someone has the right permissions to remote to something with WMI, they can add whatever usually they want to that group that will then let you bypass the two-factor authentication. Um, I did not say try it. I see that going into the chat right now. Um, so, is there a way around but it? That's, you, just, you just opened up a can of worms. Now, is there a way? Well, yeah. Right? Yeah, if you run RSA, look for anyone being added to that group, right? It's that simple. There's easy logs to detect that. 
Um, but you know, it's those types of things that like, gosh, I never even thought about the different ways people remote to boxes and what two factors really protecting. Um, and it, it, go ahead. Real quick. Was that red team, were they internal or were they an external team that did that to you? It was an external, right? Um, so, so it's something that they must've developed that knowledge from dealing with other customers and trying to bypass that before. Um, good, good for them. Right. Um, but it was one of those things that kind of like opened up, like, you know, sometimes when people say, oh, if you just had two factory, you wouldn't have that problem. Right. You know, sometimes we throw certain technologies and solutions and it's like, that's not, and that, that goes to say the technology didn't fail. It worked exactly how it was expected to work. It's the process. And yep. that's what red teamers really root out a lot of times is really the process in which you implement or utilize the technology because there are ways, if you understand how the technologies work, to monitor, detect, defend that technology so it can function how it's expected. Um, so so that was, there's lessons like that I've learned all the time looking and working with red teams. It's very important to work closely with red teams. I hate when there's like a black box red team and then someone's like, hey, you guys got red team, you guys got pwned, you guys need to do better next time. And then you don't talk to the red team at all and you're like, <laughs> I mean, all right, now I'm just super paranoid and pissed off, you know? <laughs> like please, can I talk to them and we can go back and forth of what I did see, what I didn't see. I think that's very important. Um, but also it's great to be like, I've, I've mentioned it before, Cyber Shield, Cyber Yankee, those types of, there's only exercises I'm familiar with where it's true blue versus red simulation, where there is no consequences to making mistakes. I mean, there are in the exercise, right? But not like the real world where a red team can kind of go full tilt if you're doing really good. Uh, where it might break things and a blue team can try to figure out how they can defend and figure out what they will break if they defend too hard too. Um, so those are really good ways to one, build confidence in your team. Sometimes there's some team members that do really well, but they're not facing that like ni- cyber knife fight every day. And you put them in that environment and they're able to be successful or be partially successful or understand what they don't know. They just become a better asset because they have that confidence and they feel comfortable in their own shoes and chair civil chair that we all sit in and work um and do what they need to do so you know there's so many aspects of red teaming blue teaming that i think you know from an organization to just practical exercise and you know implementation so that's a great point so um personally and i I agree with poli um there needs to be their uh communication between red team and blue team um, what that um, means to each organization depends on whatever you know, whatever you feel like is best. But there should be some. Um, I so I'm gonna go back to that um, the first article that Mike brought up though, talking about burnout. So if you decide to go full tilt onto these burnt out individuals that aren't very ready, they may have been undertrained but overworked. Um, they're trying to grow. They're trying to get better. And then you come just crush them with a um, a red team exercise. I mean, you're you're gonna. I I bet you won't see analysts leave faster. Like there's no way you'll be able to retain them. So I really I really hope that organizations will almost tailor it um, to their maturity to what they're gonna do. So talk with the uh, red team and blue team should talk before anything ever happens. Get people trained up about, hey, here's um, tactics, techniques, and procedures that threat actors use. Um, what what controls, what detections do we have to detect this right now? Help help build that and then validate it maybe through emulation 
so that you know that it works. And then maybe later on, once they are you know a little more confident, like you said, Pulley, go ahead and do an exercise, but then have an immediate debrief. But there there cannot be um like all egos need to be set at the door. Cause like you Absolutely. like you said, Pulley, you know, red team wins, they come in pumping their chest, like, you know, like, hey, you know, we did it, you know. And the big thing is like that you guys are a team, you're one organization, right? You're all working towards the same goals and beating people down is never um, never going to help you to help your organization. Um, so sure. if you maybe just slowly build as the sock matures, test them, talk to them, create detections together, test new TTPs. Okay, run another test, talk again, and just keep that going and going and going until both um, both teams are maturing together. Then I think that's like the best benefit that you can possibly have is yeah. literally building together and getting better together. So you're building better. You're testing better, and your coverage is as complete as it can be. And that, yeah. once again, that would be that would be justification um, for why is cybersecurity around. And like you said, it gives those um, those uh, SOC analysts a, a win every once in a while if they do get it. Um, keep them around. Go ahead, Mike. I guess I'm saving. Go ahead. Oh no, um, I, just looking at the poll, uh, it looks like side by side in monthly quarter quarterly touch points is are kind of the winners on that. Um, and I think that's why there's been a rise in the concept of purple teaming to Lee, your point and Scott, your point, get these teams together and build a solution together, right? It's, it's cool that the red team can potentially beat the blue team, but the goal is to secure the organization. And so again, the purple team is the combination of those two uh, doing the exercises Kind of side by side, but there is a there's a um, a debrief at the end where you're you're both learning, uh, you're both being able to implement the things and get a better understanding of the environment. So I think that's really important as these organizations mature again to lead to your point that there has to be some back and forth with these two groups, and it gives both sides a win. It's really cool if a red team can get in and do some cool stuff in an environment, but it's also really cool if that blue team can find it. So there's wins on both sides. Yeah. So on that note, um, one thing is if you ever work with an outside penetration testing team or an internal red team and their documentation is horrible, get rid of them because the value in red teaming is they should be able to describe and show you everything they did so that you can better defend. Because if they're not documenting well enough, they're basically just trying to beat their chest. Like they're just basically saying, you need to do better. And that doesn't help anybody. But going back to Lee and, and Mike's point about um, that debrief or side-by-side, -side, you know, th there's gonna be, especially if you feel like your security operation isn't at the maturity where you feel like you can just run solo and you can beat down most things that you see, there is a, a, an advantage to, doing your red team exercise where it's literally side by side where they're going to be like, I'm going to do this. What did you see? You didn't see anything. Okay. Take note of that. I'm going to do this next. What did you see? And if they walk through everything they plan to try to attack and do, and you can see what you do see, you take note of that, then come back six months later and do a blind type test. And if the blue team or security operation hasn't built the right defenses in, take note of what, changes were not made and that is a good measurement for are you improving the right way 
because if they're able to come back, because I've seen that too many times, a red team comes back and they're able to succeed on the same thing as that you failed to fix, you know? Do, do, do the red teams understand what you should be seeing? I mean, I, I guess they're typically focused on just getting access to the thing, but do they understand intrinsically what logs are going to be generated because of the work they're doing? So I've worked with some teams that were really good about saying like they, for instance, they did like a Kerberos and they're like, Hey, we just Kerberos. Um, did you guys see it? And we're like, no, I don't think so. And they're like, okay, well, if you're looking for Kerberos and usually you're looking for a downgrade attack, um, well, people trying to pull the service accounts. So you see a lot of requests for the service accounts um, type requests. And then you see that the encryption is RC4, which I think is in the in the Windows event, it's like 0x18. So you see a lot of those because that's not standard encryption, but then you have to look at your configuration. Do you allow that, right? But by looking at those two things, you can say, wow, a lot of service accounts were hit and we see the 0x18. Now you're like, this looks like a curve roastable type thing. And they're able to give that feedback and that technical detail, which was awesome. Some red teams might not. Um, right, the right, good right. ones definitely can. Uh, but but sometimes they might just do something and they'll be like, did you see anything, right? Like, did you see any activity? And you can give like, well, we had, we had this one alert pop and they can look and be like that. No, that wasn't us. Or, you know, that looks like it caught part of what we did. That's kind of cool or whatever. And you kind of have to come together on that. But that's why timestamps are also very important. They do something no timestamp what happened because sometimes you might have to go back if you do miss something dig up whatever data was there and how do you build something from that I mean, at least you have the data to work from right what if the red team gets on a box and changes the uh the date timestamps the servers <laughs> well they should tell you if you're doing a side by side if they don't then you should they should tell you that you can't detect when we do this so yeah, yeah it's kind of one of those things but, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's about how do you have a question about uh tabletop exercises yeah. how do you feel about them Go. Well, ironically, if we want to jump to our next topic, we're going to touch on that. So, are we ready to move or not? That's a great segue. I mean, that's the next right. topic. I feel Shoot. like. Uh, All right. RW. Good job. <laughs> well, thanks for the lead in. I really appreciate that. So, effective tabletops. Um, kind of like, have you ever been in one? What are the things you guys like or don't like about them? Um. What are what what does a beneficial tabletop look like to you guys? Um, and then, you know, what are some values that were highlighted at the end, or what were some changes that you were seeing after a tabletop? I don't know if you guys have been in those, but with those questions up in the air, I'll let you guys jump in, and I'll give you my take. What is a tabletop exercise? How about we start there? Oh, so we have a virgin to the tabletop. I like this. So, have you ever played Dungeons and Dragons? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah no it's the idea is you are playing out an incident and it's kind of like role playing sometimes people try to bring more technical things into it but you walk through an incident and you basically say all right well let's get all the stakeholders in a room let's get everybody around and let's let's work through what we would do how we would communicate and kind of play it out from start to finish a full incident based on the topic you choose right so it's kind of like a play acting that thing. If you think like D and D and everyone role playing, that's the idea. Um, so, does that help explain it? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. Just for the audience, not for myself. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's kind of weird that you've never done one, but I mean, it's it's possible. Yeah, yeah. for I guess. the audience. I mean, from from my perspective, I was always on the engineering side ahead of this, so yeah. I didn't have to do the sock type tabletop. So we're, we would do that from an engineering. High availability, something goes down. What do you do? Type perspective, but 
but I just wanted to, as we go through the topic, at least explain what it is before we. Yeah, yeah. Good call. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to take this real quick from you, Mike, because J Dub's actually hit what I was going to say. I've played backdoors and breaches. I've never been in like an official tabletop exercise. Um, the thing I like about backdoors and breaches, yeah, there's like cards that make it go sideways. Um, it has been a while since I played it, but I remember. It, but it's it's in scope, right? There is a scope that you cannot go outside because everything that's printed on the cards, that's what's going to happen. Um, and I'm going to touch. I'm actually going to reference this as you know to the red team as well. Um, as long as you keep everything into scope and in as normal situation as possible, whereas you don't have that one guy that's just like, I need to see who's thinking creativity and like, like, well, what if the threat actor pops out of a trash can? Like, you know, you got to keep it like the most, like you got to keep it, it believable, right? Like, um, because if, if you're trying to get creative thought, then do something else. A tabletop exercise is where you're supposed to sit there and say, and literally talk to people and teach them instant response where you say, all right, well, we've identified X. We're looking for this, this, you know, as a SOC team or the threat hunters, you know, we used to be like, we identified this uh, executable reaching out on this port, this port, and this port. We found out, you know, it was installed on these different computers. So how would we handle that situation? Not some sideways, you know, curveball that management might throw in at you. So as long as you keep it effective, what was that? I was going to ask, with the tabletop exercise, though, are there those anomalies or situations that somebody can drop in as a, like a, oh, crap moment, like something else happened that, that we inject. Expecting? inject into yep. the tabletop exercise? I, I mean, coming from, I understand war games, right? There's typically you know, a, a set standard of things you can do within the scope of that. And then there's always those outliers, things that happen that could change the course of that exercise, right? So is there that capability within these exercises that happen sometimes? Okay. I think I think the the inject is very important, but I feel like a lot of people run into problems when they try to do injects for their first few tabletops. I think it's really good to do like your vanilla tabletop to establish like everyone kind of knows how to play the tabletop. Also, everybody has a good grasp on what their role is because when you add too much chaos to people that are kind of already chaotic to begin with, the the value I think gets decreased significantly. But it's great when you think you've done a tabletop, everything was run really well and you're like, okay, this part we did really well, now let's when we do it again or do something similar the injects cater to disrupt that piece that you guys are solid on right so how would you adapt because this is the one thing that i think tabletops are great at. I'm, I'm, if i'm jumping or cutting people off i'm sorry um i've talked about security maturity and i look at it as a measurement of resilience that inject is a great example of that right where you have processes, you have capabilities, you have specific stakeholders and people and roles and responsibilities and all that. If you put an inject in and it comes, it disrupts things so much that now all of a sudden things can't work as long as it's a, a practical inject. I know some like dragons come in and flame the landscape, whatever. But if, if you can't recover, it's a measure of your maturity, right? Which means that you're not very resilient to those types of changes. And I, and I think some tabletops, that's where the injects can really help 
measure those the, that resiliency. That's what it's really there for, in my opinion. Um, so they're important, but like I said, if you don't have a good solid grasp or ground, throwing injects in, you won't be able to measure resiliency because you weren't resilient to begin with. So there's nothing to really measure against, right? So. Yeah, and sorry, Lee, for cutting you off. I don't know if you had more to. No, you're good. You're good. I think one of the greatest things about living in Ohio um, is there knowing. One? Huh? <laughs> is there a greatest thing to living in Ohio? It is. You're about it to is. hear it, Mike. Um, you're about to hear it. <laughs> like FE, working at First Energy and the local areas, they never have to worry about the inject of a Super Bowl parade. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> It's because he's a Steelers fan. He had to throw that in there. <laughs> I see. I see what he did there. Yeah, so yeah it hurts. It hurts. So, uh, no. Um, but bring this back to reality where it might be possible. Um, so one of the things I think is really important for uh, tabletops is um, the preparation phase, right? Um, I feel like a lot of times, you know, Tabletops need to be made by the right people. The, the people that are making the tabletop or the exercise itself are like almost the most crucial part, more so than the players, um, because they need, really need to have a really good topic to test and not a topic that's like so broad that you're testing too many things at once. Um, and then they need to understand what procedures and policies are related to that topic, because it's really good because you should already know what maybe the resources that a teams may use to address whatever those issues are um and then what individuals are tied to those so you know what groups and stakeholders to bring in um and then obviously one thing i hate about a lot of tabletops they get so high level there's no technical data and it's it's really tough you want to bring in security people that live the day-to-day bite by bite and then say all right we have this scenario it's a phishing email someone got fished and you're like okay where'd it come from was there attachment was there i don't know was there a link like how did they get there i don't, I don't they, they just got a phishing email and you're like that's not enough information for me to tell you what i would do next right and and so so there needs to be some thought some thought that goes into what artifacts are known that, you know when you get brought into this instant there's always some things you know might not be a lot but you know some things and there needs to be a list of unknowns things that if you were to go through certain processes, you may discover. And if someone was like, hey, I would do this, I would look for these things, they'd be like, hey, when you look for these things, these are what you discovered to kind of lead okay. them through, right? Because you know that breadcrumb trail is kind of what you want people to kind of stumble and fall on so that you can test all the processes out. If you don't have a breadcrumb, you can't control. I mean, I don't know if anyone's played D&D. I haven't personally, but I've heard all the horror stories where people just go rogue and the, and the game master's just like, or dungeon master is like, I, where you guys are going has absolutely nothing to do with what we're trying to do here, right? Like they they go so overboard in on one side. Um, so that that's an annoyance of mine. The other annoyance is when you have the technical people or the or the people that are in charge of responding, the stakeholders, and they're like, oh, we'll just, we, it's an incident. We'll follow the incident response plan, and like they like summarize it as that. Like we'll do the we'll do the fishing response plan procedure. Like, Done. Okay. Like <laughs> you need to one. I think there's two ways to do this. You can do this blind, where you say, "We know there's procedures for this. You can't look at your procedures, right? We think that you guys. We want to hear what you guys would do personally, because that's a good thing to document. Is there anything you would do that is different that may need to be added to procedures? 
or anything that you forgot that you need to be refreshed on from the procedures that are good things to do, right? Like you're kind of measuring that out. Um, but when people are just like, oh yeah, we'd fall, we have a procedure for that. We do the procedure and by the end of it, we would have it resolved and then we'd hand it off to someone. So you're like, why do a tabletop if you're just going to say we have a procedure? Because that, 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 that part always infuriated me when I did tabletop. We just, we just stopped like the attack. That's it. Yeah. Stop. I feel like you need to bring in the eight, 18-sided, the eight-sided die or whatever and roll the die and see if it actually hits. So you know, that's what we'll do. So yeah. we mentioned backdoors and breaches. And, you know, it's another call out to Black Hill Security, right? They're the ones that kind of push that out. I want to give them credit for it. But what I think is really cool about their approach is they have certain things you can play. And they have – you're supposed to play with the 20-sided die and you roll. Um, and then sometimes when you want to – I'm going to take this action. And you roll and it's like you didn't find anything. Because you might not, right? Like yeah. you expect, you expect. Well, I'm going to do this, and this is going to always work every time. And some things don't. So what do you do? And that that's kind of like the inject. You play the probability game with the dice. Uh, I think that's a really cool approach. Um, trying to think, if there's anything else I wanted. To, you guys got anything else? I got I got a couple more topics, but I want to I want to give you guys opportunities to, to jump in as well. I think one of the um, I think listen to podcasts and listen to the or YouTube talks and yeah. I think tabletops have come up, and as you stated, one of the things they always mentioned was we would normally just cut access to the file shares so that you can't pull up your procedures, you can't pull up the call list, so you can't just say, "I call the sysadmin," you know, I print that out, and like that immediately, like people were like, "Oh," and like, "Oh yeah," and by the way, you didn't print it out, even if they were sitting there with their binder. It's like, no, like, what do you do? What would you do? And that's like. And the thing about tabletop exercises, they're just like red team, blue team. Um, just if everyone approaches it as we're here to learn and get better versus a I'm going to get fired if I say the wrong thing and then, you know, not making one of people want to talk, then, you know, then maybe we'll start progression. Yeah, so oh, go ahead. I was going to comment on uh, JC789. You know, I was talking about, yeah, you know, you're short staffed. Like, when do you do this? How do you maximize this? How do you how do you deal with this in the day? So something I've I've never seen it done this way, but I think it would be an effective way to do it as long as you have the right people driving it and the right documentation. Is a tabletop doesn't have to happen start to finish with all the different stakeholders. So if you think like a really massive breach, you might have to bring in legal and HR and people outside your normal like it's a good idea to do that because there might be some regulatory things you have to communicate or how do you communicate to upper management and executives? Like what gets communicated to them in a breach? Like those things are good to walk through and test, but you can imagine how large that can get and how much time and really money when it comes to people's time at that, of those levels that you'd be incorporating. But there's no reason you can't break up your tabletop into bite-sized pieces. And what I mean by that is, like let's lose i mentioned the fishing example right you can have just a few folks that deal with the initial we got the alert or however they were notified of this fishing their first few steps and what they found that's the one bite size you document all of that and then you're like okay so then you talk to them and say all right what are your next steps who do you communicate to who they communicate to is when you schedule that next meeting with the next group of people to then pick it up where you left off right and you document that and so that now you can incorporate all these different teams. They're not necessarily interacting. There's always going to do a big one at some point. I think there's value to that. But then you can kind of manage everyone's engagement. And, I, and something I failed to mention before that I think is a really good, we talk about metrics and KPIs, 
a really good thing to measure in a tabletop is as people walk through what they think um, they would do, have people estimate, well, if you were to do this, what, how long would it take you to do it? What's the fastest amount of time you can estimate? What's the longest amount of time? Because sometimes you're like, yeah, I'm looking for this log. I can find it in five minutes or it could take me two days. I mean, that's good to know um, because I don't know how many times, you know, incidents have happened and people are like, have you found the answer yet? And it's like, dude, like I just got the alert. I'm looking at these five different things. I need to run things. I need to validate things. And I need at least 30 minutes. And then 30 minutes turns into two hours. And they're like, well, gosh, you said 30 minutes. And it's like, well, this is, this is real. I think those expectations can be evaluated. And then if there's, there's lead times that are too long that you do in a tabletop, you know, it's all estimated, right? Um, you can say, well, how can we make that better? What about like, that that might be a justification to say maybe we have the wrong tool for this if it's going to take you two hours every time to look through this you know take that information and take that back because you can say hey we did a phishing incident that was big enough to incorporate communicating out to all the staff at you know and and executives and whatever and we got hr involved and by the time we were done it was a day and a half well guys a day and a half for a phishing incident that's like a crazy amount of time maybe we need to figure out how we communicate better so that we don't have that or how can we cut some of those really long running times that we estimated down um i think that's another measure for a tabletop that doesn't get taken like that sla i hate slas because i i think that people if people hold people's feet to the fire on those sometimes it's not realistic but there are important to understand in order to basically frame things for improvement so right no, I love that idea of the bite size, like basically putting a pause in the game and passing right. the ball to somebody else to pick up. Um, especially if you don't have the time to do it. You have small teams. I know there's a lot of comments about people having small teams and short staffed. And, you know, that's a that's a, an amazing way to at least have everybody involved where, so, it's, again, it's an exercise, right? It's, it's yeah. And you made me think of it. So I'm going to cut you off for a second because it's on the same topic is the bite size kind of works with passing the ball but you might even be able to do the bite size where you test different people on the same team, right? Like what were their reactions different from your reactions? So you kind of, because you might have that one person that knows all the answers. And if they're in every, every tabletop, they're going to give the right answer every time and they're going to yep. move things along. And it's going to be like that value, that little bit of stress, a little bit of whatever that's created in a tabletop kind of gets pulled away because you're like, all right, John's got it, you know, versus it'd be like, Hey, so we got these two guys here. They struggled. These two guys nailed it. This we compare notes. This is what we got out of it. Where we need more training or you know, this, 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 whatever. It's good stuff. That's a great point. Uh, have you been a part of a tabletop where, like, call it the CEO or the manager is out of pocket? Like, you can't get yeah. access to this person. So what do you do now, right? And that's a really good way to do it. Because to your point, there's typically a guy in an organization that knows everything. Right. He has the keys to the kingdom. He's the dude that set everything up. He knows the policies. Get rid of him. What happens? Right. Personally, right. No. If, you, if you can, I would run with buddy pairs as well. So I know even if it is a small organization, get your experienced guy that may have been through a couple incidents or may have been through a couple tabletops. Pair him with junior analysts over there. Give, you know, tier two or tier three the chance to sit at the board and see. So. What I envision is you send a super experienced guy and a junior. Um, what that opens you up to do is the junior learns and grows. The senior is there for support to say, you know, here's how we normally do things, or this is where I would go for a really technical question, right? That gives the tier two or the tier three 
the opportunity to sit at the board and start doing the tier one job again, um, which may seem you know awful to some people, but as a tier two or tier three, you're a trusted and respected individual that what your um, what the cases and alerts that you're dealing with, they are what are they're providing value. So if you give that time for the tier two analyst to sit down and say, is this what they do all day? And looking through the alerts and say, wow, like this isn't proving any value. We need to work on this. So it gives that, you know, that review again, um, back to the tier two or the tier three analyst, uh, where just try to create a situation where everyone can grow at the same time, maybe in different aspects, but as much as the pain that might seem, um, go for it. Work in buddy pairs and give those people opportunities. So just kind of calling up, we got the five minutes left. So I think we might close that topic um, and kind of close everything out unless you guys got any passing remarks. No. All right. Well, I just want to thank everyone for joining again. Uh, once again, uh, love talking shop with you know friends and colleagues. Uh, always love doing this. Please, if you like what you hear, check us out on the Apple Podcast, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you can get your podcast. And leave a good review because the good reviews actually help others discover our, this podcast and conversation, and they can join in as well. And then it's always good to have more conversation there. And for, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but for those that may join later, don't know, we do a 30 minute episode weekly about on Wednesdays. I'm um, talking about the five breaking articles, news articles that week, um, and how they might pertain or be interesting to you. Um, so check all that out. Um, just so you know, the malware margarita, that's what we drank this week. Um, next week, the drink is going to be the X-Gen in tonic. So um, <laughs> hopefully we'll have something really good there because it's an X-Gen. Um, so please check that out and be prepared. Um, and yeah, any last uh, remarks from you guys? Yeah, also, we got work, our next workshop's coming up November 16th. So um, if you haven't participated in those, uh, I um, highly recommend it. I mean, I, I run it, so I would as well, no matter what. <laughs> um, I do a great job at teaching. But no, um, before, I would definitely take uh, the chance to look at our other workshops as well, because the tactics that we use to threat hunt are pretty similar. Um, it's just really the data that changes. Um, so come ready, come prepared, and uh, come to earn your Defense Evasion Level 1 badge. Yep, I just wanna say thanks for the support. Um, thanks for the interaction on Discord. It's awesome to actually talk to people as we're doing this podcast. The feedback kind of, it helps uh, uh, energize us. So appreciate it guys. Yeah, absolutely. Love being with the community, even if it is virtually. That's right, that's right. All righty. Have a good one. Take care. Happy hunting everyone. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.